And with that, I want to um, turn to welcoming our guest, Dr. Jeff Baker, who is a faculty affiliate of the Theology, Medicine, Culture Initiative, and he uh, directs the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and the History of Medicine here at Duke in the School of Medicine, he, where he's um, a pediatrician and a medical historian. He received his MD, PhD from Duke. And uh, uh, Jeff is also an elder at my church. And so I, I feel like I'm under his authority in, in lots of ways. Uh, and I sit at his feet and learn lots of things. I also make his life complicated occasionally. Um, so uh, uh, I appreciate um, his willingness to, to partner with us and walk with us. Jeff has a particular, um, both as a pediatrician, his clinical practice, and in his work as a medical historian, a particular focus on some of the histories around vaccine controversy. So it's a real joy to welcome him tonight, someone with both clinical and uh, historical expertise um, and just genuine wisdom. It really is a joy to, uh, to talk with Jeff and learn from him. And he's been doing an amazing amount of work across the university this past year in particular. So um, please join me in welcoming Dr. Jeff Baker. Thank you very much. Um, so Jeff, thank you again for being with us. Uh, as a pediatrician, we've talked several times about how you encounter vaccination controversies on a regular basis in your practice. And then as a historian, you research controversies as they intersect with um, uh, vaccination, especially around questions of either autism uh, and or race. So I wonder if you'd start us off by sharing a story or two about how these controversies have played out in your own clinical experience. <clears throat> okay, thanks. Thank you, Brett. Yeah, I, when I got my history PhD a long time ago, I, I was always struck that, you know, Herodotus first wrote about the Persians, not about the Greeks. And history, I think, is a way to learn about other people. So I kind of, I, I have always been interested in using history to understand people who disagree with us, okay? And uh, I could tell a lot of stories. I, I practiced in South, in a Duke clinic, very kind of nice Duke clinic in South Durham. And uh, we pretty regularly get folks uh, who question vaccines, who want to put, put their kids on a different schedule, question the additives in them and the like. A lot of these folks uh, are, are really, you know, they're nice folks, you know, good educated mothers who've done a lot of uh, research on the internet, um, very concerned about breastfeeding, vitamins, um, often from Carborough. <clears throat> and over time, I feel like I've kind of gotten a way to talk to those people. You know, I, I do a lot of listening. I, I teach residents, don't judge, but listen first, assume these, they, they are being, that they do want to be good parents. Uh, and I could talk more about that, but with COVID, I'm struck that something kind of different is going on. Uh, it's, it's really different uh, because most people who, most of what we think of as the quote, uh, uh, I don't really like the word anti-vaccine, but that's kind of the stereotype. But when we think of people against vaccination, we tend to think of very middle-class educated population um, who are usually white and the leadership of, of all these groups are white. Whereas with COVID, we're seeing many people who are uh, less educated or people of color who are, who are questioning the vaccine. So it's a really different dynamic. Uh, you're on mute, Brett. 
that's a helpful differentiation, Jeff. Thank you. Um, I wonder, uh, thinking about your expertise as a medical historian, uh, I recognize that there are entire books written on these topics and you've written articles yourself, but I wonder if you'd take seven or eight minutes to give a bit of the history of some of the controversies around vaccination with an eye toward the issues of race that you just uh, hinted at and mentioned. Um, and feel free to hone in on any particular historical episodes. Okay, start up your timer, Brett. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, we could tell a history of sort of the classic rise of anti-vaccinationism in the last 30 or 40 years and its sort of roots and in individualism and self-expression of the 1970s and 80s, maybe the environmental movement and the like. But I'm not going to do that tonight. I think that's sort of a, that, that's, again, the story that we're not dealing with so much. I, so I've been thinking about, so why is it, you know, I'm going to, I think I'm going to focus on race and I, and I know it's not really all about race. There's a, there's a lot of other folks questioning this, but I, to me, it's very interesting to think about why are, when, when people who traditionally we think of as anti-vaccine have been overwhelmingly white, why is it this time is especially people of color who are questioning that. Um, the answer you get that you know, from a lot of commentators and, and, and sort of quick answers from people I've talked to is, well, it's the memory of say Tuskegee. Thank you, Heather got it already. Yes, Tuskegee. Um, and that's cited a lot. Um, and I think there's some truth to that. Although I think, I really believe that we have to think of Tuskegee as kind of a placeholder for much broader experience that people of color, that, that African-Americans have in particular experienced at the hands of white medical institutions. So it's kind of a shorthand way of saying this. There's lots of stories that could be told. Tuskegee is one that people recognize. And maybe for five minutes, what I'd like to do, Brett, is just share a little bit of a couple of stories that I think people haven't heard of, <laughs> different no, than Tuskegee, that actually have to do with infectious disease. I think the key to understanding this is to recognize that it's not really so much just about vaccines but it's about how infectious disease are perceived, how epidemics are perceived among people of color. So let me do the share screen and don't worry, this is like just a small number of images I have, but you know, I'm a historian, I gotta do a couple of pictures. So Brett, if you have your volume on, I wanted to, well, <clears throat> you know what disease this is. It has its label, it's polio. If I get a group, I used to get to a, a talk for medical students. I would ask them to list the 10 greatest breakthroughs of the 20th century. And not many people could do more than one or two, but one of the ones that would usually make the list was the polio vaccine, right? And the polio vaccine you know, is often thought of as one of the great medical stories of the 20th century. Um, it's a story of a vaccine that was developed really by a, by a voluntary agency, the March of Dimes. And it is a fascinating story how this volunteer group raises the money to, 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 to do all this. Uh, it's a story that involves, of course, President Franklin Roosevelt, um, who, of course, contracted polio. Polio was a disease that stalked, especially afflicted the middle and upper classes. If you grew up in uh, an inner city area, you probably would get it as a baby and you just got a, a fever. If you got it when you're older, that's when the paralysis would hit. Roosevelt was the epitome of that because he had been basically tutored, <laughs> had a private tutor throughout elementary school. So he didn't get it till high school and he got a whopping case of it that paralyzed him. Roosevelt's uh, law partner starts the March of Dimes uh, that will fund so much polio work. We forget that a lot of what March of Dimes did was to basically, it was dedicated to, the, it, was, it was the first great disease advocacy organization in the United States. 
Um, and its goal was to provide polio treatment to anybody, regardless of their ability to pay. And for a long time, that meant providing ventilators. And these are images of ventilators. So the Bartram Times is a it's huge, they've put out lots of pictures. And in showing the, these pictures, I wanted to just, just look at the imagery and what, what is common to this. Um, we think of an iron lung, we think of something horrible, right? Is that the image here? Not really. Here's another man, this is Frederick Snight. He was called the man in the iron lung. He spent his entire life in the iron lung after catching polio in China. And he was portrayed in the press over and over as a hero, kind of like that child before, who, and a champion bridge player, they would always point out in articles, <laughs> and a father of four people, uh, a fighter. Uh, this is a story of American heroism. Here's another image uh, from the time period. In 1946, polio struck Hickory, North Carolina, the western part of the state. And, the, and the, the National Foundation, the March of Dimes, came in and basically took over a summer camp and made a polio hospital. <laughs> and it's, it's a, and they, they made a, a movie trailer about this. So these are all, this is why the polio story kind of resonates with us in a way that, uh, you know, most drugs don't. It's a story not only of a medical breakthrough, but it's a story about volunteerism. And when the vaccine comes about, you know, it's, it's a big national event. All these kids are, you know, it's a field trials of 2 million kids who line up for the vaccine. And it's lots of drama. It's finally announced safe, potent, and effective. And, and it's just a great story. Uh, Americans all hug each other when it's announced. The NIH gets lots of money, et cetera, et cetera. What strikes anyone about these images? <laughs> they're positive, they're American, and- They're white. They're white. Thank you, Walker. Yeah. So here's, there's actually, so it was true that polio especially struck people who are higher income, middle and upper class. That was true. But that was turned into a myth that it only struck white people, which was patently not true. There were black children who got polio, <laughs> and yet they were invisible for the first 20 years of the March of Dimes work. Um, eventually, the March of Dimes does get pulled in through the advocacy of African-American doctors. <laughs> so you're ignoring this. And they began to fund, a, they actually created a polio center at Tuskegee. Um, and uh, you know, kids are brought in. Warm Springs, which is where polio, Roosevelt took his uh, spa treatments. That was segregated for a long time. Blacks couldn't get in. So this is illustrating a really important theme, I think, that about, so, Americans, and let me say white Americans, tend to tell the polio story as, as this central narrative of what medicine can do in banishing an infectious disease. African Americans have had a very different experience around the same disease. For them, is a, this is a story of neglect, <laughs> you know, how they did not benefit from, you know, from this amazing stuff that was coming out of this campaign. They were let, they were shunned on the side. It's a story of neglect. And that is how I think Tuskegee is, is probably better understood. It tends to be framed as an experiment. I think of it as another story of, you know, I mean, it's, it's about uh, you know, 400 black men who are not given penicillin for 40 years. They were untreated just to study it. Why wasn't there a feeling, why did the white establishment feel it, they didn't have to eradicate syphilis? Well, because syphilis was constructive disease that only affected those people. It's not a danger to us. <laughs> They, they, they don't mix with us. So there's not an imperative to treat uh, people with syphilis. 
And I could give other examples of this, but what I want to give a sense of is um, that Blacks, uh, in particular, have had this experience of feeling neglected by the great medical breakthroughs of the 20th century. Now, that isn't to say that public health hasn't had interest in Blacks or uh, African-Americans or in, uh, in immigrants, for that matter. They have at different times. And it, you, might, you might expect it's when those communities pose a danger to the wider community. So let's fast track to the early 20th century. Just three more pictures. Uh, uh, this is smallpox in 1900, uh, the tail end of what's the, the, the last great smallpox outbreak in America. And uh, vaccination is, you know, the city basically sends door-to-door -door vaccinators to, to get everyone uh, caught up. We forget that when vaccination campaigns are done for smallpox, they went hand-in-hand -hand with quarantine campaigns. So a bunch of doctors would go into a district and they would vaccinate the people who were healthy and they would find the smallpox victims and quarantine them, pull them out. So these two measures happen hand in hand. And the brunt of uh, the, the main people who experience this tend to be immigrants in the North and blacks in the South. And just two images this, for the immigrants image. This is a very notorious smallpox vaccination campaign in Milwaukee, I think 1893, uh, <clears throat> where a very aggressive public health chief sent his is vaccinators into the Polish and German districts of town where a polio, where, I'm sorry, did I say polio, into a, where a smallpox outbreak was, was flaring. And the vaccinators went in, while they're vaccinating, they also are picking up uh, people who have smallpox and quarantining them. They took children away from their parents. That led to a month of demonstrations by these immigrants. In the South, uh, there are very few African-American, most smallpox campaigns were in the Northern cities um, and there are very few African-Americans in the North uh, before about 1916. But uh, African-Americans did feel the brunt of similar campaigns in the South. Uh, and this is an image that I think uh, I'll use to connect to a story of a great smallpox output, outbreak in, uh, in Kentucky around 1900. Um, and uh, the Kentucky Health Department basically sent its team into the town of Rutherford, Kentucky, a mining camp where there's an outbreak among black people. And it went, and it went in, found that African-Americans were hiding from the authorities. They're hidden in a house. And it's pretty obvious why they would wanna hide because they came in, they, they again took the people who had, they, they uh, uh, took uh, essentially, a, uh, took the people who had not who, who had smallpox and put them in what was called a pest house. And then everyone else, they forcibly vaccinated. And there's actually testimony that they put black people in handcuffs and vaccinated some of them at gunpoint. So that's a story. That is not a story you hear in your standard celebratory history of medicine class. Um, and uh, I think about how does that play out in the memory of, uh, of people of color. Thank you, Jeff. Those are, are, are many of those memories are memories that I, I'm not, I haven't been taught that I, I don't hold nearly as closely um, as many others do. Uh, I wonder to, to turn back to our current moment a bit, like how do we see these histories playing out? I mean, I can imagine some connections, but I, I'd welcome to, to hear you make some as well. Um, yeah, so 
um, I obviously haven't had as much experience with this because it's also new and kids are not being vaccinated yet for COVID, right? Which is who I work with. Um, but I did have one conversation. It was, it was striking because, um, oh, I was, I was having one of my email tirades, uh, being frustrated that the, the kids who have, who have complex medical needs were not being offered the vaccine. And I was getting real upset emailing people and others were commiserating with me. And a day later, I ran into one of those families, a family with a, a, a child with autism and some other disabilities too. And uh, while we were talking about that, I actually didn't bring it up because there's lots else to talk about. But the mother asked me what I thought about the COVID vaccine uh, when it did come out. And I said, well, I thought it was a really good idea. I had had the vaccine. And she looks at me and there's an there's a African-American woman. She said, I heard a man just died of it. I don't think it's safe. I think they did it too fast. Um, and we talked a bit and, and I, 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 I shared what I understood about the vaccine. And again, that I had done it. I could tell she was not convinced at all. And as often happens in the clinic, I didn't have that much more time to talk because we had kind of gone over with all the other issues that were to talk about with this young person. But I'll just show one of the story that this kind of spurred me a, a few days later, Brett, uh, a student that we both know uh, in our cla class, uh, who is a, 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 a African-American student, she shared with us that her family didn't want to get the vaccine either. So I kind of, she invited me to talk with her and I kind of wanted to after this other experience. And we had a really good, a 30 minute talk at the end of Friday on Zoom. And she was very open about it. And she was talking about her family's attitudes and their feelings that about the vaccine. Um, but it, I came away from the talk realizing that I didn't really have an easy answer for this because she made it very clear that the issue for them was trust. And as a white provider, white physician, I just didn't have that trust. So she was going to talk to her family and that probably would help. But that left me feeling very humbled. Humbled, that seems, uh, <laughs> seems right. Um, hmm. Well, humbled is, is in some ways a, a, a good segue to, to the next question. I'm, I'm wondering, um, so as I mentioned earlier, you're not only a pediatrician and medical historian, you're an elder at, at my church how, and have been quite involved with our church's responses to over the past year as well. Um, how do you as a Christian think about COVID-19 and vaccination controversies? Okay. I think there's a, maybe a number of things that could be said um, and that probably most of you can say in much smarter terms than I can in more theologically uh, appropriate terms. I guess I'm gonna share two thoughts that I have that, that, I, that uh, strike me this issue. And they have to do with identity and trust, okay? So let me take the first one first, identity. Um, one thing that I notice is uh, there is, as a physician, as a pediatrician especially, um, it is not, that easy to talk about, talk to somebody who turns down vaccines. Um, it's kind of emotionally loaded. There's this, and, and by the way, I feel like medical students feel even more so this way often when I talk to them. Um, certainly at least by the end of their clinical year, they're feeling the same way. There's a sense that vaccination for pediatricians and for doctors is kind of like the American flag. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it is something we believe in really deeply. And it kind of, 
it, it, it hurts, but it kind of is just sort of irritating when somebody doesn't want to do it. <laughs> and it hits at your professional identity and who you are. So as a Christian, I think that raises questions about what is my identity, right? Is, am I, uh, I think a lot of Christians from, uh, who are in medicine, if we're really honest, we'd say our identity has become our professional identity. We really are primarily identifying as a doctor or a specialist and maybe a, a Christian on, on the side. So this whole issue makes me think about what is, how is, if I think of myself as a Christian, how is this different? And it also makes me realize that I need to, I have this professional identity, but the patient may look at me basically as a white person. <laughs> that's, a, that's another identity. Um, so professional identity that we, um, and then how patients think about us, can our Christian identity help us to remind us that we don't fit into either of those categories? So that, that, that's one thought. The other thought, I, I think, this actually, this whole issue carries you into really the heart of what medicine is supposed to be about. There's lots of literatures about how to talk to people who turn down vaccine, lots of articles about it. And there's, and lots of uh, you know, evidence-based systematic, systematic reviews about uh, approaches to convince, uh, to, to address vaccine hesitancy. Pretty much all the approaches have failed. <laughs> the systematic reviews are, boring to read because they all come up with the same answer. Um, in, in other words, a lot of these approaches tend to focus on what information can we provide to somebody who is questioning vaccines that will change their mind. And I think a, what a lot of people are starting to realize, what, was, what people are starting to realize, I'm not sure if it's a lot of people yet, but more people are realizing, that it's not really about the information. It's not about the message, uh, the package of information I give a patient. It comes down to whether the patient trusts me or not. Okay, um, if uh, they don't trust me, I can, I can cite whoever, whatever expert committee I want to, I can cite all the statistics in the world, but if they don't trust me, they're not gonna believe it. Um, so this leads me to think a lot about how, how trust is so central to the doctor-patient relationship, which uh, I actually think is a controversial thing to say, because I feel the whole direction of medicine going today is, I mean, I'm a primary care doctor, right? Well, the sexy thing to talk about today is medical homes, not primary care. Um, you know, it's talking about an institution, a place where people can go and get prompt service and, be, and, and, and get the services they need by providers. Whereas this whole issue really highlights that you have to have somebody that you trust. I wanna be careful, I don't think I want, I want, I don't wanna say that it has to be just like a physician, but a trustworthy, <laughs> partner is what is required here. And I think that's the idea of a trustworthy partner is a challenge in, in, our, uh, in, our, in our modern medical world. I just, uh, that conversation about trust is so, so important and, and complicated and rich. I, I mean, it seems to me that uh, on a deep level, the only way we receive truth is through trust. And, and so um, why would anybody trust that the gospel is true uh, without being able to have relationships that pull us into the beauty and mystery of what it means to belong to Jesus and follow him? And because, uh, you know, otherwise, like, come, 
come join this thing where you have to die to yourself. And uh, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, not the easiest pitch um, in the abstract. It, it does require uh, some trust building and, and humility, um, which in many ways, the I'm thinking Philippians 2 and the Christ then, like Christ coming low to be with us, um, to, to, to walk with us and, and draw us near. And that, anyways, I, I see that, that, um, the way you name Christian identity and the importance of trust uh, as maybe relativizing some of your primary identification as a pediatrician or physician um, seems like it would extend throughout a lot of spheres of, of both your clinical practice and, and our walk as Christians. That's what I was trying to say that you said better. No, 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 no. You, uh, you, earlier you said y'all might could say something smarter, but there's a difference between sounding smarter and actually being wise. And I think um, you have quite a bit of the latter and a good bit of the former as well. Um, so uh, I think what, what, what we'd like to do now, maybe, let me pause. Jeff, do you have any kind of um, closing thoughts uh, before we turn to some conversation in smaller breakout rooms? Um. I know that you guys are really about imagination. So I, as we go to those breakout rooms, I guess I'm hoping we can try to, to use that. <laughs> um, I would like to, I feel like I don't, I don't get to do that enough myself, but I'm just gonna sort of throw out that world. I, there are a lot of things in the system that make this, process, this project of building trust hard, right? Uh, the woman I told you who said she wasn't gonna vaccinate her, her, her child with autism, that was the first visit I ever had with her. <laughs> You know, so we're meeting strangers. There's a lot of things that make it hard. So how can we imagine building trust? How can we imagine our institutions maybe being more supportive of that? Yeah, yeah. And if, and if, um, if in many ways, Christian communities built around the hospitality of Jesus, welcoming us as strangers and calling us to be family and friends together around his table, um, that question of how to go from strangers to, to friends and co-laborers and walking together is, is such a, a deep one. And it's such a hard one in COVID as well when the basic things like breaking bread together um, or, uh, or in-person visits as a pediatrician are, um, are so complicated. 